You're listening to the Unveiling Mormonism podcast from PursueGod.org. Join pastors Ross Anderson and Brian Dwyer every Monday as they pull back the curtain on LDS history, culture, and theology. Find more resources to continue the conversation at PursueGod.org slash Mormonism. Well, Ross, so far on the podcast, we've talked a lot about history and beliefs of the Mormon Church. We've looked at Book of Mormon. We've looked at um, the you know, the scriptures of Mormons, some theology. We've looked at some of the history and some of the problems that we, we find with the Mormon faith and, and belief. But today we're going to kind of jump into culture. What is, what is life like in the LDS Church? And Ross, who, who really is this particular episode for? Because a, a Mormon who's listening might not read, really need to listen, right? Because a Mormon knows what life is like in the LDS Church. Right. I'm thinking, uh, in these episodes, I'm thinking of a person who has an LDS friend or someone they work with, their dentist, and you wonder, like, what makes them tick? What's going on in their daily life? Sometimes how they react toward us and how they treat us, there's some answers in terms of their way of life, in terms of the way their life is structured. Or maybe you've hesitated to get to know that Mormon person and this might help you feel like you can go ahead, and it's okay to to try to understand them. Yeah, and by the way, Ross, you've written a book on this particular topic. If people want to learn more about what we're going to be talking about for the next half hour, 45 minutes, where can they go to pick that up? Yeah, the book is called Understanding Your Mormon Neighbor, and uh, they could get it at any retailer, um, online retailer, especially it's available at Amazon or any of those kind of sources where you'd normally buy books. Yeah, so just look for author Ross Anderson, pick up the book. It's a great read. I have a copy of it. Ross, I still need to have you sign that copy, but I do have a copy of it. It is on my Kindle, though, so maybe that won't work. So let's jump into this, Ross. Let's start with this idea that church life is really, the church is central to life for a Mormon, right? In a, in a way that's really even different for probably our Christian listeners who are involved in their church. Yeah, even Christians who are very involved in their church, it, it's a different kind of scene. If you think about it, you'll, you might hear your Mormon friends talking about the church, the church, and that's just shorthand for them for not only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but everything that it represents, its history, its doctrine, its practices, its organization. And living in Utah can be a little bit annoying because they'll often say that as if it's the only church that exists. And that's because often their frame of reference, they can be myopic about other people's faith experience because the church is so dominant and their life is so wrapped up in this one ecclesiastical organization. Yeah, I remember when I first moved to Utah over 20 years ago, people would ask me all the time, are you a member of the church? Or sometimes they would just say, are you a member? And so it really is, you have to kind of get used to this language if you are moving to Utah. You have to get used to this language that I'm sure that they probably don't have. And, you know, I had a lot of Mormon friends back in Chicagoland. I don't remember anyone ever asking me if I was a member. It's probably because it wasn't so dominant, you know, but in the society in Utah, boy, it's, it's really, it's all there is, right? Yeah. And in, internally, no matter where you, they were, Chicago or anywhere else, internally, they would still talk that way. Uh, maybe not externally because it, it is dominant here and in other parts of the Intermountain West. And Mormons don't, don't just go to church, Right, kind of like we would say, probably in the Christian tradition, we'd say, "Are you going to church today?" 
for Mormons, for active members at least, it's, it's so much more than that, right? It, it really is their life. Yeah, we might say, hey, what church do you go to? And that would be a different kind of question that the Mormons would ask, because for them, um, it is their life, their whole life. Like you said, it's like they are so immensely dedicated to this institution, and it takes a significant investment of their time, their energy, their loyalty, their money. And, and really the difference is, is that faithful Mormons believe that their church is the only true church on earth, that it's the very church that Jesus established long, long ago. Yeah, so they believe it's really the only vehicle through which salvation can be achieved. They believe that without its teachings and its ordinances, we've talked, which we've talked about in some other episodes, without its authority, that no one can really get to the highest level of heaven. So if you've missed any of those episodes, we spent the first five episodes on this podcast talking about what Mormons believe, comparing it to biblical Christianity. And let's make sure to come back to this at the end. Ross, we'll throw that little teaser out there so that people listen all the way to the end of this podcast we will address whether the Mormon church is the one true church in kind of a biblical way to answer mm-hmm. that question. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's remember to come back to that. But Ross, for now, let's talk a little bit about how the church is organized, because the LDS church is organized in a way that's really different from maybe the Baptist church or a non-denominational church that you might attend if you're listening. Yeah, it's one of the um, larger churches in America, even though... Mormons are only 2% of the population, in that they have about 7 million members in the United States, and more than that around the world. But the way it's organized is that every person goes to a local unit called the ward. That's like a local congregation. And the ward is maybe 300 people or so, and they all live near each other. Uh, There's certain boundaries in the ward. You go to the ward in whose boundaries you live. And there's there must be about... 13,000 wards in the United States, a few wards together, several together make up what they call a stake, S-T-A-K-E. And so your primary experience of the church is going to be in your local ward, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, Ross, this is a question I've been dying to ask you about this. When, when we see a church building, right, when we see a Mormon church building, and if you ever drive through the Salt Lake area or anywhere in Utah, really, you'll see any of those. They tend to be pretty simple buildings with a steeple. And the difference is it it might look like an old Baptist church, but the difference is there's not a cross at the top of the steeple. That's how you know if it's a Christian church or a Mormon church. If it's a Mormon church, it won't have a cross at the top of the steeple. Maybe we'll explain that here a little later, Ross. Is that called the ward? Because I think when I first moved here to Utah, I always called that the ward, but technically, at least in Utah, that's probably not the right word for it. You know, it, it is used that way. So the ward means the region that meets in that building, but it also means it's come to, to they'll talk about the ward, the ward house, shortened to the ward. They'll also call it the chapel. And so sometimes we use the word church to mean two different things. We mean the people who are meeting there, and sometimes we mean the building. And I think that's similar to how they use, might use the word ward. So there's only one ward that meets in any particular building, or are there multiple wards that would meet at that building? Yeah, this is where Mormonism is unique um, compared to a lot of other groups, that is they do have from two to three wards that meet in a given building. 
So they're really getting their bang out of their buck for that. And every year the, the schedule rotates. Who gets the prime time, you know? Well, every year they switch in, in the fall. And if you had the morning schedule, then next year you're going to have the afternoon schedule. And it's a, it's a block, a little over two hours. They move you in, they move you out, and then the next block, the next ward, geographical group comes in and has their services in the same place. So, for example, I don't know, I'm going to test you here. Do you know which ward you are in, in your particular area? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know its name. Yeah. I know a lot of the members, but I don't know its name. Every ward has a name. So I might live in uh, Pleasant Valley Ward. Okay. Or South Ogden Third Ward. Right. Or something like that. Right. Okay. And so every ward has a name. And here's, here's something that's kind of fascinating for any realtors out there or people moving to the area. Ross, tell me if this is still true. This is what I understand, is that if you live on a particular street in a particular ha- uh, house, then you have to go to the specific ward that is assigned to that street or that house. Absolutely. You go to the ward that you live in. And so it's like, um, it's like school districts in that sense. If you live in a certain school district, you go to a certain school. Same, same way with the local ward. So what do I do if I want to change wards, Ross? If I'm a Mormon and I'm just like, I want to try another ward out, what do I do? You move. <laughs> or you wait until they change the boundaries of the ward. They, might, they will change the boundaries from time to time when the population shifts. If a certain area is growing, they'll re- reduce the boundaries or declining, they'll expand the boundaries. So if you're lucky, you could get written into a different ward at some point. Okay, so there's never like a rogue Mormon that just goes to another ward. That's not a thing? No, they'd be found out pretty quickly, and it's, it's never encouraged or permitted. And if you showed up, they would know where you live, and so hmm. you, know, you would be put back in your place. Okay, so let's, let's talk about the staff at a local ward. How is a local ward staffed? The, the ward is all staffed by volunteers. Uh, there are no paid individuals on any church, uh, Mormon church ward staff. It's led by a guy called the bishop, and he usually serves for around five years, but he has a full-time job. You might, he might be um, a salesman. He might be a doctor or a businessman or uh, an engineer or whatever it might be, but he's a bishop because he's loyal. He's got some kind of leadership ability in his job, and um, you know he's respected in the in the ward community, and so they they rotate through bishops every few years, and then he builds a volunteer staff around, you know, uh, some counselors, and this whole ward organization is all staffed by volunteers. Okay, so there's no staff that's paid at the local level. Then, at what level does the Mormon Church start paying staff members? Then, yeah, they have. Um, the, the highest level leaders, the general authorities they're called, they are not paid a salary, but they, are, but they do get a living stipend, which is you know the same thing really. But they make a big deal about not getting a salary, but they get a living stipend, it's ample. And then there's um, a whole bunch of bureaucrats who work for the general church and administration, administrating the worldwide church, and they are all paid. They're paid. They're professional accountants or 
media people or curriculum writers or secretaries or whatever, and they're all, they're all paid as part of the general staff of the church. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about that, that sort of highest level of leadership, because this is going to be probably news to some of the people listening today. Most of our churches, we don't have prophets or apostles or presidents, names like this, but the Mormon church is different. The Mormon church uses those kinds of names for their hierarchy, so explain that to us, Ross. Yeah, these general authorities, there's several layers. I won't go into all the details of of all the layers of leadership they have, but at the highest level, they consider that their church is led by living prophets who speak and act for God. At the top of the food chain, so to speak, is the president of the church, who is known familiarly as just simply as the prophet. And he's assisted by two counselors. Those three make up what's called the first presidency. And then along with them, policy is set by the quorum of the 12 apostles. Um, So these are senior leaders. It's all based on seniority. If you are named to be an apostle at age 60, then you're an apostle for the rest of your life until you pass away. And uh, what's interesting is the kind of esteem that people hold these leaders in. And so the average rank-and-file LDS member, they might have a a picture of one of these guys in their uh, house, framed picture of the current prophet on the hallway of their home. When the prophet appears at a meeting, they'll line up you know, around the, around the corner and around the block to go and meet the prophet and maybe shake his hand. And um, they really, really revere and are very reverent and about the, any personal encounters they have with these apostles and prophets. Yeah, let's make sure to address that at the end as well, Ross. Like, what? How should we view that biblically today? Um, apostles, prophets, in particular, a prophet, capital P prophet. I think we should make sure to save some time at the end to talk about a biblical understanding of all that. But, but for now, I think it's important for people to understand sort of the hierarchy in the big picture, but then there's also a bit of a hierarchy down, back down to the ward level, right? Not just with the bishop, but there's even something um, that that people may have heard of called the priesthood. And Ross, walk us through that, because that could be, again, really confusing for people. If I hear the word priest and I heard, hear the word prophet, I'm not really sure which one's, which one's more important, right? And so let's break that down for uh, for the person who has a Mormon friend who maybe doesn't have an understanding of what those words mean. Right. They have this thing called priesthood, and they define priesthood as the authority to act in God's name on this earth. Now, it's not like a vocational thing, like a Roman Catholic or a Greek Orthodox priest who's called to lead a congregation or whatever. This is something that every worthy male member has the privilege of having, this sort of priesthood authority. And they believe that Without the priesthood authority, then a baptism or a blessing or any kind of ordinance is just not valid because it's not authorized by God. And so they really, the the father in a home is the priesthood holder in the home. And so he'll use that priesthood to pray over his kids and maybe give a blessing when they're sick or something like that. But also each person in the hierarchy of the church from the family to the ward to the to the overall Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the whole thing is run on the principle of priesthood. 
And so, you know, you might hear your, your Mormon neighbors talking about priesthood or priesthood meeting is a place where in the local ward they get together to um, talk about things that people who have the priesthood talk about. Or you might hear them talk about how young boys, at, at the, when they reach the age of 12, are ordained into a lower level of priesthood. And, and there, are, there are priesthood ordinations going on up through their teenage years. Those are common experiences that, that might leak out into their relationship with you as an outsider. Yeah, I remember when I moved, first moved here to plant a church. I moved to Utah over 20 years ago. I was meeting with some missionaries. My wife and I were... Um, and I remember one particular point they invited. I can't remember the the missionary president. Is that a thing? The mission president. The mission yeah. president. They brought. They invited the mission president to come over to help me understand Mormon theology. I, I think I was being troublesome, maybe, but I wasn't trying to be. I promise. But as I shared with him and kind of challenged him on some things, and he challenged me. And to be to be honest, Ross, he didn't. You could tell he didn't really know. He didn't really fully know his stuff. I think one of the missionaries was a little sharper than he was. But I remember a week later, we <laughs> we got an anonymous, like anonymous hate mail in our in our um, mailbox. This was back when mail was a thing, and it was funny because uh, there was no stamp on it. Um, or he tried to make it look like it was just anonymous. It was clear that it came from him. And in the letter, he just said. A, an eight-year-old boy in our church has more authority than you do. Now, I'm a guy, I went to seminary, I went to Christian seminary, I went to, I've got a master's degree, and I'm not, not, I'm not saying that that qualifies somebody, but I'm pretty educated, I, I love Jesus, I've been, you know, been a Christian most of my life, I came out here, sacrificed to plant a church, to be a missionary, raise support to do it, I mean, I was, in in many respects, you would have thought that they would have looked at my life and, and said, man, that's really impressive what you're doing. And yet this was his response to me, that an eight-year-old boy has more authority than I do. And I, I think he really meant that. And he, meant, he was talking about the Melchizedek priesthood, wasn't he, Ross? Yeah, that'd be the Aaronic priesthood, oh, the and Aaronic. it would be 12-year-old. 12 12 but the, the principle is the same. It's that they believe that this priesthood is really what qualifies you to do anything for God. If you don't have it, then you're just spinning your wheels. So so eight years old is where you get the Aaronic? Twelve years old. Oh, twelve. Which one's the what, eight-year-old? Eight, year, eight years old is baptism. It's baptism. Yeah, to become a member. But twelve years old is the Aaronic priesthood, and then the higher level of priesthood is called the Melchizedek priesthood, and that's usually uh, bestowed a upon adulthood, like when a young man goes on a mission at age 18 or 19. So really, he was just even just talking about baptism. That, that, okay. That, right? Because yeah. that why would he mention an eight-year-old boy? Eight-year-old, yeah. That, he must have been talking about baptism. Yeah. He's just saying that that ordinance qualifies an eight-year-old boy. Anyway, it was pretty embarrassing, I think, to the missionaries, because we shared that letter with the missionaries, and they were pretty appalled. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they, you know, they're trying to build a bridge yeah. with me, and... And this guy's kind of working against anyway. That 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 always kind of struck me. And you you know, listeners might have experiences like that. Now, gladly, I don't have a lot of experiences like that. I I just ran into a, a former bishop the other day, and he just said, "How has your experience been in Utah? I hope I hope Mormons haven't been jerks to you." And I appreciated <laughs> a, a statement like that because yeah. he was basically saying, "I know it can happen, and so we don't want to paint Mormons with a broad brush. There are many wonderful right. Mormons." And there are, just like we have at, at, you know, evangelical Christian churches, there are lots of 
Christians who can be arrogant and judgmental and all those kinds of things, but you kind of find them in all churches, don't you? Right, true. And it, you see, that's part of the, the fruit of the one true church mentality that we mentioned earlier. Right, exactly. Okay, let's let's zoom out for a second. We'll, we'll come back to the local congregation, Ross, but much of the LDS life is experienced in relation to the church as a whole. Let's talk about Let's talk about that, starting with something called General Conference. What's General Conference? How often does it happen? Yeah, General Conference happens twice a year, typically the first weekend of April and the first weekend of October. And what happens is that at the conference center in Salt Lake City, as many people gather as can fill that place, and they have, they have messages, talks, or sermons from high-ranking general authorities. And it's broadcast all over the world. So those who can't be here in person can watch it on various forms of media, television, whatever. So this is the time when new announcements are made, new policies are, are uh, announced to the members, and the leaders give faith-promoting talks, trying to instill certain values or loyalties or perspectives that they want to share with their membership at large. So every year, the LDS population is really looking forward to, oh, general conference, what's going to be shared? What's going to be said? There's an anticipation, and there's a lot of talk afterwards among Latter-day Saints about what happens next. So they cancel their services that weekend and just encourage their people to watch or to attend general conference. So that's called general conference weekend. And Ross, I don't know if you have insight into this, how many Mormons, would you say, faithfully watch General Conference from home? Because that's what they're supposed to do, right? Is watch, pretty much watch from home if they don't attend. Yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. It's a really mixed bag. A lot of Mormons really do appreciate the opportunity to hear their leaders speak and to hear what they're going to say, but others are maybe multitasking or just playing hooky. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the education system because I think it's pretty interesting how um, education works, especially in Utah. I think it, it's probably shocking for some people to know this, but um, let's start with junior high and high school. How, how does church, the church education system run in high school, and, and how, does it, how does it play out for the typical Mormon? And I want, before you answer this, Ross, I want to just I want to reflect on how a Christian might answer this. I think a lot of Christian families say, I want to send my kid to a Christian school. And um, I want them to have a Christian education. And uh, not, not every Christian family does that. We, we didn't do that, but many, many families believe strongly in that. And so we have Christian schools. So I think the first question is, does Utah have Mormon schools? Because that seems like, well, that would be obvious that then they would have tons of Mormon schools. Is that true? It's, there, there actually aren't. There are very, very few. There are a couple that say it's a private school education that has a decidedly Mormon perspective on it. But no, they have um, pretty much most Mormons go to public schools or charter school of some kind, but public schools for sure. And the reason that they don't need Mormon schools, at least in Utah, is because essentially there's a, the, every public school is a Mormon school. And explain how that works and what this thing called seminary is. Yeah, there's really seminary. It's funny, it's called seminary. It's not what Christians would typically understand seminaries being vocational training for ministry. Right. But seminary is, um, in Utah, at least it's a release time 
class. In other words, it's during the school day, and it's blocked out where um, a student can choose to go to seminary instead of taking an elective, and, and the church builds a building next to most high schools and junior highs where these where these classes take place. So it's a formal education like going to like going to history class or or civics class or whatever, but it's all steeped in Mormon church history and scriptures and lore and all the rest. But students can choose, say fourth period is seminary. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. And I remember when we moved here and we our daughter Kenzie uh, first got into high school in in tenth uh, grade here in our school system. We sat down with a counselor, and she handed us the schedule, the class schedule she'd already written up for our daughter. And right, kind of in the middle of the day, was I don't remember if it was called seminary, but if it was something called something. And I said, "What's this?" She said, "Oh, that's seminary class." And I said, "You mean you mean the Mormon thing to go across the street to?" to get Mormon education? She said, yes. I said, well, our daughter's not Mormon. And the school counselor looked at me with a straight face and said, that's okay. She doesn't have to be Mormon to go to seminary. So it was so shocking. to I, I remember walking away, Tracy and I walking away, just thinking, oh my gosh, like how? And I don't think she was like intentionally trying to proselytize. It's just so baked into the culture that I'm, sh- I'm sure now with so many other non-Mormons moving into to Utah that probably they're, they're starting to say, hey, you, re- you really can't say that kind of thing anymore. It really does kind of come across as like a, as a church-run school. Yeah, it, it does depend on the neighborhood you live in and how Mormon it is. To, I, could, I said they can be really myopic about other people's faith and life. I can tell you a story that probably ups that one a little bit, mm. so... I know a woman who was moved to Utah from California. She's a Christian. She's a school counselor, and she was working for a local uh, junior high school, not to be named. But she's working at this junior high school in a county school district, and the seminary building was wired into the church, the school's intercom system. So when he got in, when this vice principal got on in the morning and made the announcements and stuff like that, that's how interconnected. And then the seminary teacher won the school's, um, he was voted as, what, the teacher of the year. He doesn't even work for the school. <laughs> wow. But, you know, so it can get intertwined a lot. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you're, if you're in Utah or some other LDS place, and you have kids, then you've run into the seminary um, education system, and it's pretty normative, um, you know, most places around here. Yeah, so the church does pay. We, we said they don't pay people at the local ward level, but the church actually does pay seminary teachers to have mm-hmm. full-time jobs. Now, they, they get paid about probably about like how a, a high school teacher or junior high teacher would be paid. Um, and they essentially, it's like a youth pastor for the Mormon church, but even really more than that, because they're, they get to be around those kids during the school day all day. I mean, it's yeah. pretty impressive, pretty amazing. I, you know, most schools, I don't know how many, but mo- if you've got five high schools in your area, you'll, you'll have five seminary buildings owned by the church 
right across, usually right across the street from the high school. It's so intertwined. Again, we're talking about Utah Mormonism. It, it probably doesn't work the same way. I don't remember that there was a seminary building across from my high school in Chicagoland. Um, I'm sure that there wasn't. Uh, this really is kind of a thing that is true of Mormon or of Utah and probably Idaho. Maybe maybe some of this is true in, in Mesa, Arizona, where there's a, a mm-hmm. lot of Mormons. But generally speaking, we're talking now a, about a Utah phenomenon. So let's talk. Let's talk, Ross, about um, colleges then, right? So how does if you're a good young LDS person? Well, first of all, do you go to college right away? And then when you do eventually go to college, what are the options if you want to go to a Mormon school? Well, a lot of young, a lot of students elect to go on a mission first. They can go at age 18, and um, then come back and do their college. But by and large, Latter-day Saint population is, is highly educated. They value college a lot. They're educated with uh, college degrees more than the uh, average American population at large. But they'll go on their mission, they'll come back and attend a local school, whatever, and in the heartland of Mormonism, but not only in the heartland of Mormonism, um, the church tries to erect a building next to a college campus that's called the Institute of Religion. And again, that's led by paid um, institute professors or teachers, and they're, and they're educating their students on issues of their scripture and their lifestyle and so forth, but just at a level that's more appropriate to um, college-age students. Yeah, so think about this. I, this is really fascinating. Most people wouldn't realize this, but think about the influence of the church on a young person's life, that you go to the ward, you grow up in the ward, you go to school, junior high and high school, and there's a seminary across the street from your school. So you have regular education, instruction all through those years, and not just instruction, but also kind of like a youth group, right? It's it's very social. That's why Mm -hmm. Mormonism is so, it has such a strong grip on people because it really is your whole life. I mean, you go to church, you go to church with people in your neighborhood, first of all. That's unique enough, right? Mm -hmm. Christians don't have that for the most part, even in Texas. I mean, you have a little bit of that, but (laughs) like if you have neighbors that are Mormon, then they all go to your church. They don't go to another church in another town. They go to your church. That means that you're around them on Sundays. And then Mm -hmm. you go to school with them, and then you go to instruction, seminary instruction in junior high and high school with these, these kids. And then when you, if you go to a state school, we're not even talking about just BYU or, or some of the other uh, Mormon colleges, which there are a couple, but even just University of Utah, which, which is where both of my kids went, Weber State, Utah State, these school, all of these state schools have, a, have an institute. They don't call it a seminary. When you're in college, it's called an institute. But essentially, it functions very similarly. So you continue to get instruction. You continue to get... Um, you know, I would say indoctrination. You continue to get the Mm -hmm. social aspect of being around other Mormons. So, I mean, as a parent, Ross, I just, I reflect on this and I think, good on you, Mormon Church. I mean, honestly, to think about how much, how intentional they are about Mm -hmm. exposing their kids to their doctrine. Now, again, we don't believe it's biblical doctrine, so I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea who are listening to this. But I think maybe there's a lesson here about, uh, there's probably a lesson on both sides, but there's a lesson here about the, the power 
the power of 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 really being intentional with your kids as you raise up your kids and on top of that the biggest part of it i think is that there's this expectation that if you're a solid mormon kid you're going to go on a mission which is really where you even more than learning from a seminary teacher you're actually the teacher now and we all know that when you teach that's when you learn and so mm-hmm. That's why it's so amazing for someone who's grown up, like the testimony we had last week on the, on the, or a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, this seminary teacher, return missionary, he was, he was all in to the Mormon church. It really is an act of God when someone comes to a place where they realize, wait, this isn't true, and they come out of the Mormon church, but, because it's so hard, because it's just so much a part of your life from an early, early age. Yeah, like we were saying at the beginning, it's not just a matter of going to church. It's really a lifestyle. It's really a whole world and a whole identity that you are uh, that you're raised in if you're LDS. And so we want our listeners to understand that how all-encompassing this is. It's going to touch the uh, people's lives in many, many different ways, and it's going to really inculcate greater and greater loyalty most of the time. So let's one more thing about kind of the big picture. Let's talk about the LDS welfare services now, because that, there's, that's a whole other side, a whole other side of this that is pretty interesting for people to be aware of. Yeah, the, it's interesting that um, the LDS really do take care of their own in a lot of different ways, and they have this. Uh, the welfare services provide food, provide work and other staples for life for people who are going through financial difficulty. Now, it's not long-term. It's you know depends on the circumstance, the situation. Um, you might get a food box, or you might be assigned to do some, some labor. But everybody in the LDS church is probably going to in, encounter the welfare system either as a volunteer or a donor or as a recipient at some, some point along the way. And so... You know, people are volunteering to invest in, um, you know, going to the cannery and can't and uh, helping to create, you know, food sources, uh, depending on where you live. If you live near an orange grove, uh, it, you're going to go to the church-owned orange uh, orange grove, and you're going to pick, and that food will go be processed, or or you might become a recipient at some point in your life of the LDS welfare services. Okay, let's finish our time, Ross, by talking about the local congregation now. Again, the, the, the typical ward is about 300 to 400 members in a ward. So like we said, if you live at a certain house, you have a ward assigned to you. If you want to change your wards, you have to move. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who calls himself a Mormon is necessarily active, um, but you might have three to 400 members in a ward, and some of them might be, you know, a little bit inactive as members. But let's talk through um, what that's like to be a part of the LDS ward at the local congregation level. Yeah, the ward experience revolves around Sunday, but there are other things going on during the week. And it revolves around that building that we talked about earlier, uh, the chapel or the ward house. The Sunday meetings, they have programs for different ages, really for all ages. There's a, a meeting where they all gather together that it would be analogous to a Christian worship service. It's called sacrament meeting. And then 
during that second hour, they'll have their breakdown into Sunday school or men's and women's groups um, for particular instruction. And so it really provides a close-knit community. You see everybody that you live nearby. Even outside of Utah, you're still within a geographical boundary. It may not be walkable like it is in Utah, but you still see those people on a regular basis. You're involved Sunday in, Sunday out. Wednesday night might be the youth group. They call it mutual. And so there's, there's a number of things that create a rhythm of life that connect people at the local level. Yeah, let's talk about the language just real quick. So you, youth, what we would call youth group, they would call mutual. What we would call a church, they would call a ward. What we would call men's ministry, what would they call it? Priesthood, the priesthood meeting. If what we would call women's ministry, what would Mormons call? The Relief Society. Yeah, so these are not obvious names. And so it took me a while to sort of learn some of these, right? So you might have a Relief Society president. You'll have a, you know, the... Right. The priesthood leader, what is he called? Well, there's there's two groups now in within the priesthood meeting. There's the elders quorum, mm. and there's the high priest quorum. And so you might know a guy who's the elders quorum president, or in the elders quorum presidency. So it recapitulates the structure from the very top with the president and the counselors. That structure is um, modeled throughout the whole organization of the church. So the Relief Society for the Women's Auxiliary is going to have a president and counselors, and that's true throughout. And what we would call a pastor, the closest thing that they would have would be a bishop, and, and yeah. the bishop's two counselors. So explain how that works. Yeah, the, the bishop, as I saw, said earlier, he's called to this position. So he is the administrator. He's in charge of scheduling stuff. He's, his main task is to fill out the volunteer roster, but he uses these two counselors, all priesthood holders, as we said, to make decisions about how to run the local ward, and they cycle through, again, periodically, different people are taking those roles uh, to lead the local congregation. Okay, let's talk about the service, a Sunday service. First of all, what do people typically wear to a Sunday service? Like if, if one of our listeners is going to visit their local ward, you know, you've, your Mormon friend invited you to come. First of all, I would say, do it, go for it. People ask me yeah. all the time, should I go? Yeah, you should go. And yeah. then invite them to come to your church with you as well. But just beware if you go to their church, there is a little bit of a different dress code probably than your church. Yeah, you're going to dress up a little bit. It, they're they're going to they're gonna wear, women will wear dresses typically, uh, men will wear a shirt and tie, if not a suit or sport coat, and no flip-flops, no shorts, you know, no tank tops, no t-shirts. There's a level of formality uh, that they would view as being reverent toward God. And so, you know, in your church, if they, you, if they do come back and attend church with you, you might want to warn them not to wear the suit. They might be the only one. Okay, so let's, because this, this is always hard for me to fully understand. I know that it used to be recently the Mormon church changed from a three-hour block to a two-hour block. So explain, explain how those blocks work, how Sunday school works, and then, and then the first Sunday of the month is called Fast Sunday. Mm-hmm. Explain all that, and then let's make sure to talk about the sacrament meeting. So there's some language here that might mm-hmm. be new for some people, so explain that. Yeah, the sacrament meeting comes first. It's the general meeting. It's like a worship service. There'll be some hymns that are sung. There'll be a talk. They, want, they don't use the word sermon or a message like we typically would. They call it a talk. 
and that encompasses anything from five minutes from a kid um, in the youth group who's sharing something all the way to maybe a 20-minute address from a, a, a local leader. And uh, every week they will receive, it's called the sacrament meeting because they will receive what they call the sacrament, which is their equivalent of communion. They pass around uh, trays with uh, white bread torn up into little pieces, and everybody takes one, and then they pass around cups filled with water, basically. They don't use a wine product or a grape product. They use water. And this, that, that has a little bit of a different meaning than Christian communion, but that's the analogy, analogy to, to Christian communion. So it's gonna, in some ways, it's going to look a little bit like um, a standard Christian worship service from before the days of guitars and drums. Okay, so, yeah, when we use the word sacrament, we actually don't. We call it an ordinance, but, but the word sacrament that some churches might use, they think about typically sacrament, the two sacraments, baptism and communion, are two sacraments some churches would, would take to be sort of special ordinances. When the Mormon church uses, or a Mormon friend uses the word sacrament, they're only talking about communion, and that's good for right. people to remember. Right. Okay, what, what happens with the kids at sacrament meeting? Do the kids go to kids' church? Most of the kids are in the meeting with their parents. Um, and so parents become really creative with finding ways to try to keep their kids quiet. You see a lot of Cheerios in a LDS <laughs> sacrament meeting, keeping kids something to snack on. There's quiet books, activity books, and things like that. But it can be a hubbub um, in, the, in the meeting because there will be a lot of kids there. Yeah, my Mormon friends say one of the things that's so that they notice about coming to our church when they show up is they say, I can't believe that no one was on their phones. Because they said, in the Mormon church, everyone is on their phones, not just the kids to keep them quiet, but even, even really the parents. A, a, another friend of mine said that, yeah, every once in a while, there's someone that's pretty good at giving a talk, but usually it's pretty uninspiring. And, uh, and so really, it just doesn't, I mean, it just doesn't grab your attention necessarily, um, like, like maybe as someone who preaches for a living uh, can do, and uh, it might be a little different in terms of an experience. My brother is a musician, and he left Mormonism some time ago after I did, and he said, wow, he couldn't believe it when they actually went to a Christian church. He said, wow, I, n I never knew the quality of the music, the quality of everything that was going on there was so impressive to him. It was encouraging to him as a musician because in the LDS ward, because it is all volunteer-led, which is a, 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 gr a great value in a lot of ways, but in other ways it, you end up with it being potentially very amateurish, mm -hmm. and that's what does come, sometimes come across. Okay, so, so that's the sacrament meeting. Then the second hour, so the first hour sacrament meeting, the second hour rotates. One week it's Sunday school, and then one week it's what they call men's and women's auxiliaries. Explain that real quick. Right, so, so it's going to go back and forth. So Sunday school, everyone goes to Sunday school. Um, kids have their Sunday school. Adults have Sunday school. There's different classes that they offer. Gospel doctrine class, for example. And it's their mixed groups men and women together. And then they, on the alternate Sundays, they go into the Relief Society and the Elders Quorum, and the kids go to primary, 
which is just another form of Sunday school. It used to be it used to be that primary was on a afternoon in the week, like a Wednesday afternoon, um, like youth groups on Wednesday night. But now they just kind of rolled a lot of those things up into one schedule. Latter Day Saints are kept really, really busy by the church, and so I think in some ways this is a response to. Uh, maybe some pushback or maybe some just realization from the leaders about how really, really busy their people are. So they tried to scale back and consolidate at least just a little bit. So, and explain this last thing, every first Sunday of the month, they have what they call Fast Sunday. What is that and which hour does that replace? Yeah, Fast and fast Sunday is the bigger term, and they call it that because they're encouraged to fast for two meals and not eat anything, and during those two meals, the money that they would have spent on food, they're encouraged to give it to the church for their fund, for their welfare fund, basically, to take care of people who have less. And so when they come on Sunday, instead of the uh, an ordinary sacrament meeting, they have what they call fast and testimony meeting. So they're fasting during the meeting, and instead of a talk or talks, they will have people invite people up to the pulpit to share their testimony publicly. And there might be time for, for seven or eight or ten people to come up and share their testimony of the truthfulness of the Mormon church to everybody else who's gathered there that day. Okay, now most of what we've been talking about, really we've... we've We've been talking about a lot of Utah cultural stuff, but really everything we've talked about right here is for churches, Mormon churches, even outside of Utah or Idaho. And, you know, in those places outside of Utah, you know, inside Utah, it's really the, the ward, your neighbor, the ward is your neighborhood. And so it's just all totally enmeshed. But when you're going to a Mormon church in Illinois, in Chicagoland or something, then really... Obviously, your neighborhood isn't going to be filled with probably Mormons, so the ward then for you just becomes more like a an LDS cultural center, right, Ross? Like an island of Mormonism in a non-Mormon community. Right, because for one reason, because the ward is going to be the same wherever you go. The structure, the, the things you do, the way you dress, every, everything is going to be the same whether you're in Southern California or Alexandria, Virginia or Chicago or Utah. And so it feels like a little bit of home to, to many Latter-day Saints who don't live in the heartland. So, Ross, let's just end coming back to this question. So the Mormons believe that the Mormon church is the one true church. Is that such a thing? Is any one church the one true church? Well, yes and no. There is a one true church, but it's not represented by any one particular institutional identity or denomination or congregation. Biblically, the one true church consists of all those who are following Jesus, who are in relationship with God through Christ by believing in him alone, by trusting in him. It includes all of those people whenever they lived, wherever they lived, and whatever visible expression of church that they were involved in. So the one true church is, in a sense, it's invisible, it's universal, and uh, it's timeless. There, that's what the Bible means by the one true church. But there's no de- denomination or no you know, uh, particular congregation anywhere in the world that you could say is the one true church in exclusion of all others. Yeah, to be a part of the one true church, to really be a Christ follower, you need to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And if 
If you haven't yet listened to the first five episodes of this podcast, I point you to those episodes where we talk about, in great depth, we talk about Mormon belief versus biblical belief. So we believe that the Mormon church is certainly not the one true church. However, if you're a Mormon and you believe in Jesus, you believe in a biblical Jesus, you can be a true believer even though you're going to a Mormon church. I just think, Ross, that people like that probably eventually won't last in the Mormon church because, among other things, they're going to realize that there isn't a one prophet, capital P, prophet, who can speak for God with authority like the Mormons view their prophet. Right, exactly. Uh, because Jesus is the final prophet. Jesus sums it all up. Everything that the prophets were all about in the Old Testament, the ones who created Scripture and all the rest, um, it's all wrapped up in Jesus. And it all points to him, and everything is fulfilled in him. And so the New Testament talks about prophets with a small p, or prophecy, which just is basically giving a word of encouragement of some sort to others, but it's not speaking for God in that magisterial sense. That, that was all wrapped up in Jesus. All right, so that's Life in the LDS Church. If you want to learn more about this topic or other topics related to Mormonism, or if you want to learn more about biblical Christianity, you can find all of that at PursueGod.org. Again, find our Mormonism content at PursueGod.org slash Mormonism. We'll see you next time. Hey, listeners, this is Brian Dwyer reminding you to rate this show on your favorite podcast app. That really does help us when you do that. That way more people can discover this podcast and start listening. And also, don't forget to share the podcast with a friend.